Father, we thank you and praise you for the truth of the word which we hold in our hands. In a world in which it's hard to find truth anymore, in which it seems that uh, prevarication is the order of the day, particularly in places of leadership. Oh Lord, we're so grateful that we stand on the rock, Christ Jesus, who is true and faithful, and that there is, there is in this world absolute truth by which we can and must live. And Father, I pray that we will be people who uh, absorb that truth and make it a part of our very being, that you will be our guide and strength this morning, that you will teach us from your word, that you will bless as your word is proclaimed in this complex this morning in the various classes in the service. And Father, in this city of Reading, we ask that you will bless the proclamation of your word. And we ask that there will be many born into your kingdom this day and others strengthened in their walk. And those that are hurting in various ways will find you to be their sufficiency and their strength. We just commit ourselves in this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn to the sixth chapter of the book of Judges, sixth chapter of the book of Judges, let's read beginning at verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon said to him, If now I have found favor in thy sight, then show me a sign that it is thou who speakest with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to thee and bring out my offering and lay it before thee. And he said, I will remain until you return. As we have read in the first part of the chapter, uh, of the sixth chapter of the book of Judges, Israel is again in a pickle, so to speak. Uh, they have turned their back on the service of the Lord. And so the Lord has sold them, we're told in the passage, into the hand of Midian, meaning he allowed the Midianites, who, as we talked last Sunday, uh, were cousins of the Israelites, allowed them to oppress Israel. And they were, of course, doing it for their own good, the Midianites were, but at the allowance of God. And so, as in, in his faithfulness, God is now appearing to a particular man in Israel to open a door for deliverance to give them opportunity to be freed from this oppression. What we find in this passage as we look at the 11th verse is the phrase, the angel of the Lord. And we've talked about this before, and this will be not the, not the last time we run across this term. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Now we have to look at the context to understand who this is. This generally refers to a theophany. If the scripture simply says an angel appears, but it doesn't say an angel of the Lord, then uh, you just have an angel. But in the case where it says the angel of the Lord, and then you look at the context, 
what you discover is that this is a theophany, a manifestation of God in another, another form. And in this passage, we find that there are several verses that support this conclusion, particularly as you get to the 14th to the 18th verses. So, in angelic form. Now, what does that mean? Well, as we read this passage, we have to understand that Gideon's a bit surprised here, but he's not looking at some glowing figure over here. It doesn't say, and his raiment was as bright as the sun or any other such thing. The implication is he has shown up as a man in human form. There is a man there talking to Gideon. Just as the situation was when uh, Abraham ran into the angel of the Lord uh, in the Sodom and Gomorrah issue, and, and many times over and over again we find it in Scripture. The Lord shows up in human form. And he was sitting under what is called here an oak tree. It's actually a terebinth tree, which is similar to an oak, but not the same species. And, and there he is sitting under the tree at Ophrah. Ophrah. Now, the scripture does not go on to define where Ophrah was located. But we know that this is that Gideon is of the tribe of Manasseh. So he is in the territorial region of Manasseh. Manasseh was immediately north of Ephraim in the northern part of the hill country and into the plain of Jezreel to the north. And those who have studied this feel that Ophrah was probably more or less in the middle of the plain of Jezreel. Now, I've described the plain of Jezreel to you before. Some of you may have seen it. It's a very flat plain. It's not very large. It's just a few miles across, but it's the biggest plain in Israel, biggest area of flatland in Israel. And it's bounded to the south by mountains and to, by, on all sides actually, by mountains except for one narrow part of the plain that goes out uh, to the uh, coastal plain at uh, Haifa or another little valley which goes off into the Jordan Valley. Otherwise, you have the Nazareth Ridge to the north, you have Mount Tabor to the east, and the Hill of Morah to the east, and Mount Gilboa to the east and south. South, you have the hill country of Ephraim, and, and then you have Mount Carmel over in the west. So it's pretty much hemmed in. And in the middle of that, we find that this is probably the location of the city where Gideon was at, or the little town, most likely. There the Lord appeared to a man whose name is Gideon. This is the first time we hear of Gideon. Gideon's name meant hewer, H-E-W-E-R, as in one who chops down trees. That doesn't necessarily mean that he's doing that, obviously, in this passage, but apparently somehow or other he may have at some time been a lumberjack, I suppose you might say. But right at this moment he is threshing wheat. He is threshing wheat. Not with a combine, but by hand, banging the stuff out, trying to get the little grains so that they can make some bread. And we're told in this passage he's doing it in a wine press. Now, wine presses of that day and of that place were generally stone vats, which were placed or, or built either on top of the ground or maybe they were sunken into the ground a little bit sometimes carved out of a solid piece of rock, sometimes with stones put together to, to form the vat. Now, those, there are many examples of these vats which still exist over in Israel today that date all the way back into the Old Testament period. These wine presses were usually anywhere from 18 inches to maybe 30 or more inches deep, not terribly deep. Uh, usually they were maybe three to four feet wide by about six to eight feet long, so they were kind of a rectangle. Uh, maybe a little bit larger than a, than a bathtub. 
And what they would do was, of course, dump the grapes into this vat. And quite often there was a, a post that overhung the vat with a rope on it so the person could hang onto the rope and then stomp, you know, stomp the grapes. It was literally stomping it with your feet. I always thought, you know, I hope they wash their feet before they stomp the grapes. But, you know, in those days they had very little concept of uh, pathology as we know it today. But anyway, maybe, maybe it wouldn't hurt. Maybe that helped the grapes. I, I don't know. A little minerals into the, your, your, your grapes. But anyway, they, they, they would stomp the grapes to a pulp in, in this uh, vat. And then the bottom of the vat, there was usually a channel or a little hole where the juice would drip off into a little lower vat. And from there, they would dip the juice out and pour it into the wineskins. And, and that's how they would make their, ultimately, their, their wine. It would, it would uh, ferment in the wineskins. And that's why the whole story, you know, in the scripture about old wineskins and new wineskins, you don't put new wine into old wineskins because they've already been stretched and they can't handle it again. And so this was the scenario here. Here Gideon is, he's not making wine or grape juice. He is threshing wheat in a dry vat. Apparently everything's been scraped out and it's dried out and he's in there threshing wheat in this vat. The point of this is, he's not out in the open threshing wheat. Now if you've seen the threshing floors over in Israel, some that do exist from the days of ancient Israel, they're flat rocky surfaces, usually way out, right out in the middle of wide open areas. Because when you're threshing, you're tossing the chaff in the air and you don't want blowing in your window in your house, so you keep it out away. And that was, of course, not the situation here. He was in this vat. So he was partially hidden, you know, not completely hidden because it wasn't deep enough to hide him altogether. But usually the wine vats were built adjacent to a structure, a house or or, or some kind of a building there. So that would have partially shielded him too. And so here he was thrashing wheat in this wine vat in a place that the Midianites would not be expecting anybody to thrash wheat. Therefore, they were not looking for him. Therefore, he was getting away with it. Well, picture Gideon is in there, you know, banging on the wheat inside this, <laughs> this uh, wine vat and uh, somebody comes up and sits down under a tree right nearby. He probably noticed the guy and maybe said howdy or whatever they said, you know, and they shalom. And then the stranger spoke. The stranger said, the Lord, Yahweh is with you, O valiant warrior. <laughs> What'd you say? <laughs> Me? Valiant warrior? Here I am hiding in a wine press, trying to thresh a little grain so the enemy will not see me and I'm a valiant warrior? Now, what we don't get just from reading the English here in this passage is what is re has really been said here. Because the Hebrew, which is translated valiant warrior, is really a very effusive term. It, it's a term that is implying elite champion, mighty man of valor. Not just a good soldier, but an elite, a green beret of green berets. You know, in effect is what is being said here to Gideon. And he, the, the, the Lord has said to him that you are one of such strength, skill, and courage that you are of the level of a Homeric hero. You are an Achilles, if you will. I think that's what really took Gideon back. I mean, he's not just saying, hey, you know, good soldier over there. He, he's, he's putting him on a pedestal, in effect, as a warrior. And Gideon cannot comprehend this. 
it, it's almost like a noble title. It's like calling him my lord, you know, in the medieval world. And, and he is surprised. He's very surprised. But of course, what God is saying to him is not what you have done, Gideon, but what you are about to do. You are a noble warrior in the making. This is your potential. This is who you will be. You may not be that yet, but that's who you will be. And we can all, of course, read into that, can't we? We can put ourselves in Gideon's place and know that in our own strength, we, we have no strength. And that's going to be one of the main emphases of this whole lesson. In, in ourselves, we are, we are nothing. We have no might in ourselves. But when we are empowered by God, we become princes, in effect, of the Lord. And capable of whatever he calls us to do. To become mighty men and women of valor in whatever the situation requires of us. Gideon's response in verse 13 is really insightful. It's clear. If you read verse 13, it says, Then Gideon said to him, O oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? Notice what he has said. It is obvious he doesn't know to whom he is speaking. This is just a stranger sitting under the tree. And, and when, when he says there, Oh my Lord, you'll notice the L is a, a small L because the Hebrew word there is in effect the word for sir. Oh my sir, or oh sir, if God is really with us, he, he's talking of God in the third person here. He's not talking to this person as God. He has no idea who this person is, just a stranger who walked up, who said something rather, you know, unbelievable to, to Gideon. And he responds in a way, how can this be? How can this be true? Not only of me, but how can this be true of Israel? Because we are in bad straits. Now, just jumping down to verse 15 for a minute, though, look at verse 15. And he, that is Gideon, said to him, O Yahweh, Suddenly, between verse 13 and verse 15, his eyes are open and he acknowledges this stranger is God incarnate. Back in verse 12, the Lord had said he was with Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. But notice how he responds in verse 13. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? He doesn't take it personally. He doesn't take the statement personally. He takes it generically as if the Lord is saying, I am with all of Israel. That's the way he interprets it. That's the way Gideon understands it. And then based upon what he had been taught down through the years of his youth, growing up to whatever age he was at this point, he, he says, but the God I have heard of is the God who miraculously took us out of Egypt and brought us into this land and, and gave us this great land. And if that's the God who's with us, how can he possibly be with us? Because there aren't any miracles happening and we are oppressed. Again, as I tried to highlight last week, we cannot even begin, I don't think, to really understand the extent of this oppression. It wasn't just an oppression in the sense that uh, they were being forced to give up their food and their animals. They were being oppressed by the Midianites. It, it's sort of like going down to uh, the South, you know, before the Civil War and having the former slaves ruling over the white population. That would be sort of the similar situation. The, to them, the Midianites were riffraffed, a kind of a trash of, of nomadic people out there who live in tents and, 
and just push animals around and are thieves. Remember the Midianites were those who bought Joseph and sold him off down into Egypt. And, the, and their friends, the Amalekites, who were also cousins of the Israelites, are part of this too. And to Israel, it, it's, it's, it's not only a financial, physical problem, it's an emotional problem to have these people lording it over them. And so he's expressing doubt. If God is really with us, how can we be in such a bad situation? But he did rightly conclude that Israel was suffering at the hand of the Midianites because God had allowed it. He understood that. And he knew that that was the situation. So he correctly understood God's power. God is able to change this situation. But there is no indication in this passage anywhere that he understood God's reason for allowing this thing to happen. Why has God allowed it? He, he's, he's not saying, well, because of our sin, the Lord has allowed this to happen. He's just saying, if God is really with us, how come we're in such a pickle? He's not you know, admitting anything here. Well, the Lord was gracious to this man, Gideon. Uh, we, we have to know, of course, that Gideon, God didn't just throw a dart at the board and say, well, let's see, who shall I pick? Uh, you know, I mean, he had prepared Gideon, and he came to Gideon very, very specifically. You remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, and he was talking with the two disciples, and he expounded them to, to them from the Scripture, and, and they thought this was pretty amazing, but it didn't even dawn on them that this one walking with them was Jesus. And then when he broke bread, he opened their eyes and suddenly they knew. That's exactly what happens to Gideon here. Gideon at first says, well, this guy's telling me and he's telling me some pretty strange things and how can this be? And then suddenly in verse 15, God has opened his eyes. And he says, O Yahweh, how shall I deliver Israel? And God, of course, helps him to understand by saying, Have I not sent you? I mean, the one speaking to him, sitting under the tree there, says, Have I not sent you? Directly implying that I am, I am Yahweh speaking to you here today. There is a question there here, though, because in uh, verse 14, the Lord said to Gideon, Go in this your strength and deliver Israel. That's a very strange thing for God to say. Go in this your strength and deliver Israel. And I, I think as, as Gideon questions here, this is part of what stirs him into uh, being a little bit doubtful about what God is saying here. Why did God say this to him to start with? And of course he explains further later on, that he really means, I will go with you. But why does he say this at first? Why does he say to him, go in this your strength? Because the scripture teaches us all the way through that in our strength we can accomplish nothing for God. That's why as we think of the world today and there are all these wonderful people out here today doing philanthropic things and getting money for people who are in poverty or people who have certain kinds of diseases. And these are wonderful things. But they do not accomplish anything in God's eternal plan because they're not doing it in God's power because they're not, they don't even acknowledge God. And so really, in the long run, it is of no eternal value. And nothing we do in our own strength has any eternal value. In fact, it's often counterproductive. The answer, of course, seems to be that God wanted Gideon to acknowledge that he couldn't do it in his own strength. Didn't seem to be real hard for Gideon to do, of course. Thrashing out grain and being called a valiant warrior is enough to put you in your place. 
And so he comes to the place where he acknowledges that in his strength, he is not able to do anything. And this is what God wants him to do, or the place to which God wants him to come. That he was going to have to depend upon God. And so two things to notice in verse 15. First is that Gideon no longer doubts that God can deliver Israel. That doubt had thoroughly permeated his words in verse 13. If the Lord is with us, why are we, why, why is this thing happening to us? Where are all the miracles that our fathers told us about in God delivering Israel from Egypt? Where is all this stuff? And, and he's, he, I mean, doubt just oozes out of verse 13. But as you come down to the latter part of the passage, suddenly Gideon recognizes God can do this. God can deliver Israel. And then secondly, he responded exactly as God had intended. That is, he recognized that he himself could not deliver Israel by his own power. How could he? Uh, this, this certainly went through Gideon's mind. How can I rally the troops? I am of the least, the smallest, the least important clan of all of the tribe of Manasseh. And of that clan, I am the baby of the family. Who am I to take the leadership and lead Israel? One, one of the things that's hard to grasp about this is that in spite of the fact God has spoken to him in such a way that he acknowledges that this is God speaking to him. He was overwhelmed by the fact that he understood what God was saying. And that was God was asking, asking him to become the shofat, to become the deliverer. And how, you know, there's, there's no any way we can really understand how little he felt in comparison to that great mountain of what a shofat had become in the eyes of Israel. How can I, who am of the least of the clans of Manasseh, and I am the least in my family, if bigger clans could not do it, if older brothers could not do it, how in the world can I do it? Well, whatever the fact of the matter is, Gideon had arrived at exactly the place God wanted him to be. Gideon was expressing humility and deference. I've, I've often thought, and I've heard it expressed in other venues, that of all of the characteristics of the Lord that really impresses me at least, if I see it in someone else, is the characteristic or the attribute of humility. Because there's so little of it in our society. You know, somebody makes a touchdown and he does a chicken dance or some such thing, you know, I'm a great hero kind of thing, you know. Where, where is humility? Where is the, coming to the place of realizing that who am I anyway? I am, I am nothing. Not that we go around you know, in an old uh, concept of I'm dirt and I'm just going to eat worms all the rest of my life. But, but we have to be in a place where we recognize that without strength of the Lord, there's not a good thing we can do. Nothing. Nothing has any value unless the Lord does it through us. And then he, to God be the glory for what is done. And, and that's where Gideon has come. Throughout the Word of God, we're told that if we think we can do something for God, we will fail. But if we know we can't do it, except he does it through us, then we will succeed. This is the enigma of the gospel. It is so contrary 
to modern American individuality and, and sense of, of self-glorification. We press this self-esteem thing way too far in our society today. It is an enigma of the gospel. And Paul, I think, pretty much gives us the key to this enigma. Let me just read it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. First, 2 Corinthians, I say first, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received from the Lord, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. You know, what anybody wants to argue about what the thorn of the flesh was and all this stuff, the, the key to this is the reason, so that Paul would be humble. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. This is the enigma of the gospel. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can that be? When I am weak, then I am strong. In this world today, that makes no sense. In fact, it's even permeated the church because there are groups you know, within the church, as you know, who believe that if you're a child of the king, you should live like a king. You should have the best of everything. You should have a fleet of Cadillacs and six houses and, and, and you should be well all the time and never get sick. I mean, you know, it doesn't sound like what Paul's saying here at all. I think what they're doing is jumping the gun uh, they're looking at what's happening after we get out of this life and putting it back into this life. The enigma of the gospel. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. Because when we're weak, we realize we can't do it without God doing it through us. Jesus gave us a visual image of our powerlessness without him when he said in John, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think all of us have been in that place at some time where we've tried to do something and we really haven't been in communion with God about this thing and it hasn't gone well. In Gideon's case, so it is with us. The Lord will not use us to accomplish anything of value unless we acknowledge that we are doing it in His strength alone. God will not share the glory. And it's not because God is a giant ego. It's because he's a pragmatist. This is the way it really is, folks. In Philippians, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There isn't anything I can't do that God calls me to do in the power of Christ. And he's not bragging because he's saying, in God's strength, I can do it. Some of you are familiar with the... Uh, 19th century hymn writer John Lowry, he wrote, I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is vain. Life is vain. And that's what life is like without Christ's empowerment. Even Christians can live a vain life if they're not living day by day in His strength. 
I'm sure that all of us have had that day when we just felt like we were spinning our wheels and going absolutely nowhere and we suddenly realized that we had not really sought God that day or sought His wisdom or His strength or His empowerment or whatever it took to do what needed to be done that day. Well, God very patiently listened to Gideon's protest and the Lord made it clear that He was not asking him to do this task in his own strength alone. I'm not asking you to do it that way, Gideon. He promised that he would be with Gideon and that in God's strength, he would be able to defeat the Midianites, this great horde that was over the plain like a grass, like grasshoppers. He said, you will be able to defeat them as if they were just one single man out there, one single man, their numbers would be meaningless. And of course, all of us know the story of Gideon, don't we? And we'll be looking at it, of course, in detail, where it, it finally God pairs them down to 300 guys against, well, you know, 150,000 or, you know, some astronomical number. Now, there have been times in history when small armies have defeated large armies. Alexander the Great with 30,000 at one point defeated a Persian army with five times that many men. Was that done in God's strength? Well, Alexander the Great didn't even know God. Certainly all of history is in God's providence. But in the scripture, we discover that one can chase a a thousand and ten can chase ten thousand in the spiritual realm. And that's the way it would be for Gideon. I think one thing we should note here is that Gideon shouldn't be faulted here for asking a sign from the Lord. And what we're going to be talking about, of course, is later on is Gideon's fleeces. And I, I think it's pretty important for us to realize that Gideon is not doing something wrong here in seeking God's clear direction. But at the same time, this is a story. It is an account of an event. It is not a statement of theology. He is not saying, if you ever don't know anything, well, just start putting out fleeces. God might lay it it upon our heart to do something like that, but that is not a statement of theology. It's just a statement of what happened in Gideon's particular instance. I mean, how, how can we say, kidding you, dummy, you're talking to God. Why are you asking for some kind of proof here? Well, how many of us have ever stood in front of the angel of the Lord and had God talk to us? Some, somebody who's just sitting there under a tree, you know, and implying that he is God. Probably not too many of us would raise our hands about that. I mean, think about the fact that Gideon is on the bottom of the pecking order if, if what he has said about himself is true here. And so he has serious reason to doubt that God would choose him to be the deliverer. Why would God pick the very lowest guy and elevate him to leadership to victory? Well, of course, we know from Scripture that that's the way God works, isn't it? But Gideon didn't have the Scripture in front of him. And again, I I don't think it's, it's possible for us to really grasp how much this impacted Gideon because He knew what God was saying was, I expect you to become the Shofat, the deliverer. And he knew the stories of the deliverers. There was Barak, the mighty man who chased the forces of Sisera with their 900 iron chariots. There was Ehud who went into the very heart of the enemy camp and killed the king right in the middle of his palace. These individuals had been elevated to superhero status. They had been blown all out of proportion by Hebrew tradition and folklore. And for Gideon, who's hiding in a wine vat, thrashing out a little rice, uh, rice, wheat, I'd put it in oriental context here. (laughs) It's called contextualization. (laughs) 
it's just called mis misspeaking, I suppose. <laughs> For him to think that God is expecting him to make this quantum leap up here, I think I would say to God, are you really sure you're who you say you are? Let me just find out for sure if I might. You know, can I go get a sacrifice and make it to you? And you do something special with a sacrifice to prove to me who you are. Would you do that for me? I, I think we would be wanting to say that too. Before we took the leap of assuming leadership of Israel against this oppressive force that had forced him to live in caves and holes in the ground. We will pick up next week and move into the next section.